0: really just trying to understand this culture, but what I have subscribed to, I never really just try to understand crazy when I'm fighting, just trying to understand it for too long and nothing resonates. I'm like, because that's crazy and I'm not crazy. So it's just not going to fit that puzzle piece just doesn't fit. All for the cloud. This is something that people really need to to stand behind, and that is making sure that people who pour into the culture, people who give back to the culture in a significant way, people who have sh- shaped the culture, like New York Times best-selling author and M- NAACP Image Award winner Omar Tyree. Omar, how are you?
1: I'm doing great, man. I'm I'm glad to finally be on the show with you. We've been uh, cutting and cutting and pacing, trying to figure out how (laughs) we can get it together. So I'm glad I'm finally on the show with you. Thanks for having me.
0: Oh, uh, let me tell you something. I woke up this morning extra early because I wanted to just live in this moment. Now, for me and for countless other people, you really helped shape an era where we saw us in books, How do you feel about being at the starting gate of shaping a culture of, of, of books that really resonated with, um, I hate to say the urban community, but I would just say the hip-hop, the hip-hop community, community in the 90s? How do you feel about that?
1: Well, you know, I'm still alive, so <laughs> I'm an very personality, so it's like people... Tend to look at what I've done already mm-hmm. and I'm always looking at what I want to do, what, mm-hmm. I, what I can do, what I will do. And so even though that's been you know, a huge situation to impact the community in a readership way, in a historical way, you know that first generation hip hop, that's what I call us. We're all hitting 50 now. Yeah. And it was great to be able to do that, but now it's years later and I need to be able to do something else. So you know bringing that to the big screen, that would be the next level where now we're able to now address the younger people who tend to seem like they want to forget all the history of black folks. And so this would be good for the millennials to see it. And it's also going to be good for us first generation hip hoppers to reflect on it and fall in love again with the eighties.
0: Yes. Fall in love all over again. Now, I just want to kind of go back because I really want people to understand where you came from and where you are going, because you are now reintroducing yourself, as you mentioned, to a whole new generation of millennials who might not know who you are. Let's go back to your college days, because you didn't start off with the intention of, let's say, being a journalism major. If I recall correctly, wasn't your major... um what was it? Something with with medicine? Was it pharmacy. pharmacy? Pharmacy. What made you shift from that major to something else?
1: Well, my mother's a pharmacist. Oh. I was very used to that, seeing her go to work in a lab coat. I know she made good money, and I was a math and science guy, the typical young male,
2: mm-hmm. you know. So
1: that was very natural for me. I was always a math and science person, but I also watched movies a lot, and I was also a storyteller. I used to do voices all the time, memorize lines, me and then when rap music started. I was the one you could count on that knew all the lyrics. And so I just had that memory. And so when I got to college at the University of Pittsburgh, I wanted to play football. And I was a typical roughneck boy. You know, mm-hmm. how I was rolling with the guys, playing football, street fighting and all of that. <laughs> and so when I got to Pitt, I wanted to play football. But you have to have a major. There's no major called football. And so I went ahead and you know chose the major that I was you know familiar with, comfortable with. My mother did. She made good money doing it. Looked nice going to work every day in a white mm-hmm. lab coat. So I said, I can do that as a major. Mm-hmm. But then once I got in Pittsburgh and I started writing, and I passed into the highest level of English, and then I got an A in the highest level of English, and I was like the standout black kid, helping other people with that writing assignment. Mm-hmm. And this is my freshman year. Mm-hmm. And the counselors were like, yo, dude, you are really good at this writing thing. And so I just took it to the next level. And I had a friend in college named Mark Quigby. He was from Pittsburgh. And he challenged me one time. We had like a, a speak-out with all the students. And I always had something to say. So he said, Omar, you always got something to say, man. You should write a book or something. You're writing all the time. And the whole classroom of sophomores and freshmen looked back at me. And I stepped up to the challenge. I said, yeah, I'm going to write me a book. And that was like 1988 in my mm. sophomore year, you know, first semester sophomore year. And I stepped up to the challenge, and from that point on, I started writing books in the summer of 89. Well, actually, it was the, the, the early uh, winter of 89, and I just kept going. I had friends that were laughing at me, saying, you know, you're not Stephen King. You're black, man. You play football, get in trouble with us. How are you going to write books? And I said, well, I'm going to be the first one then.
2: Mm. And of course,
1: I wasn't the first one to write books, but I was the first one out of that new generation to write about the new era. And so Fly Girl became that first book to write about the new era of Mm -hmm. black people. And, yeah, so now that it's done already, I want to move it to that next stage and present it as a film. And that's a feature film, a big film, not some small television film. We want the big bananas.
0: Okay, so you you went from college and then what you're now trying to do with one of my favorite books, um, Fly Girl. But I just want to kind of moonwalk back, you know, just a little bit, because at the age of 26, You locked down a six-figure book deal. What did that mean for you at the age of 26 coming into so much money? What did that mean for you at the age of 26?
1: Well, again, I'm I'm more of a workaholic, so Mm -hmm. I wasn't jumping up and down and parading with uh, with the money. I was (laughs) like, okay, let's go to work. Uh And so once I sat down and did the deal, I started putting together the tour so I can push the book and travel. And at first, you know, I was coming in, even though I I had a six-figure deal, they didn't have much of a tour set up for me. They had like three cities. Oh, wow. I'm like, yo, man, I'd be hearing about these big tours. I got three cities. And so I added my own tour and added about six more cities and used my own money to fly out there to California. Uh, And I went to L.A. and Oakland. I went to Texas and Houston. Yeah, I went to Chicago. So I added Cities On, mm-hmm. and then the publishers were like, yo, he's a real go-getter. He's, like, adding his own stuff with his own money. Mm-hmm. I'm like, yeah, you know, you guys are doing your part putting the book out. I don't have to pay for it now. You got it in all the stores. Let me do my part mm-hmm. and get out here and tour like I want to, like the big, you know, authors do. Cause Terry McMillan was the, was the big dog at that time, yes. and she got, like, you know, a 14-city tour. And I got a three-city tour. I'm like, man, you kidding me? And so, you know, I was about to hustle, man, so I wasn't jumping up and down about the money. I was trying to get that book to as many people as possible, and so I was always business-minded from day one. So one no celebration of the money. It was all about let's go to work and make sure people know who I am and know the book that I'm putting out.
0: I I love that. um, That story that you just told, because it really tells people that you have to hustle. And even though you secured a very lucrative deal, the work wasn't done yet. And you had to do your part in order to sustain and make sure that your book and your message reach the masses. Now, my question, you know, do you find that? Hmm. How can I say this? When they only gave you the three city book tour, was that common Mm -hmm. for, you know, African-American authors as opposed to white authors where they really didn't believe in the work and you had to prove yourself?
1: Well, initially, you got to understand, Terry McMillan blew the gates open for a lot of black authors. So initially she wasn't getting tours either. She put herself on her own tour. So Mm -hmm. Terry was the initial hustler. And she doesn't give herself a lot of the credit because she's tired of hearing people talk about it. But Mm -hmm. Terry did a lot of the work and she opened up the gates. And so, yeah, initially, a lot of black publishers were skeptical about the black readership Mm -hmm. and what a tour would look like if people would actually come out with black people really support a tour. But once we started doing it in the early 90s, and then one author came out after another, we started becoming popular. And then the next thing you knew, black authors were hot, and we had these book clubs all over the country, and everybody was touring. And so it was just one of those things where it kind of bubbled and snowballed into this big thing of black authors and writers being celebrities. And I happened to be the youngest at that time. And so it was one of those things where, you know, yeah, initially they were as I guess, confident about how a tour would look for black people. But then once we really started touring on the regular, it became part of our regular promotion. And the black writers, we were a lot more popular than a lot of the white writers. Yes. We toured constantly, and the people were coming out to see us because it was that new thing. It was like a new black golden era of book writing for our people. And so I'm happy to be a part of that movement. And I was the youngest at that time.
0: Yeah, you were definitely a part of that movement. And um, I'm glad to have experienced um, that movement. But with that movement, I remember just seeing and hearing about this new term that the Associated Black Authors with. And that term was urban lit. How did you feel at that time? And how do you feel current day with the term urban lit?
1: Well, I started the term. I'm going to make that official for everybody listening. And the way I started that term, I was a young journalist out of Howard. When I transferred from Pitt, I took up journalism as a writer because they have bylines. You know what I mean? So I'm interviewing people, and so I'm very comfortable in the media because I am a media guy. Mm -hmm. You know, so a lot of people don't don't understand that. I'm not an English major. I'm a journalism major. So what happened was I was watching how, you know, urban radio was really a code word for blacks. And so instead of saying black radio, they said urban. Mm -hmm. And I was in Washington, D.C. at the time, and I was very much around Radio 1. It wasn't Radio 1 at that time. It was Kathy Hughes had this uh, W, I forget the name of it, but she was right on uh, 8th Street in in Northeast uh, Mm D.C. And they called it urban radio, urban this, urban that. And so I got hip to that, and I was like, all right, so I'm going to try that too. Instead of saying black book, I'm going to say urban book. And so I called my books, the first three I came out with, uh, actually, Fly Grow and Capital City. The first book was called Colored on White Campus, where I talked about blacks being on predominantly white campuses, mm-hmm. which was my situation at Pittsburgh. But then the second two books, Fly Grow was second, and then Capital City, they called Washington, D.C. the murder capital when yeah. I was there at Howard in the early 90s. And so I wrote about D.C.'s drug trafficking. And so those two books, Fly Grow and Capital City, I called both of them urban classics and I call them classics because I had the belief that I was the first one to actually historically break down the fly 80s and the D.C. killer years, you know what I mean, of the murder capital. I'm right there doing my journalism, studying the people, get the language down, all the culture. And so those two books are what I call urban classics in the early 90s. And then that word picked up, picked up, picked up, and and took off. And then the other people that started writing inspired off of me, they added an extra word street to it.
2: And right. so it became
1: urban street, and I never called my stuff street ever. I always called it urban. Some of it may have been on the streets, but I always understood that our people are more than just the streets. They have families, they have households, they live in households. They're not on the streets. Right. And so a lot of people that use the word street lit and whatnot, I get what they're talking about. There's street books, but I never called mine street. It was always urban for me. And so I was the one that started it. And you know, of course. It, it moves and it shakes and it herbs. And, you know, some people, you know, they, they lose sight of the history of it, so they yeah. don't know where it started. But I actually started that from radio. They called it urban radio. So I called my books urban uh, classics. And then the word just picked up, and other people grabbed it and added the street term to it.
0: Well, you just gave me a history lesson right then and there. But also, oh, with, yeah. with with when you started the term urban lit, fast forward, do you think that it kind of marginalized other black authors who came out after you because it just seemed as if any time an author who just happened to be black um wrote about an experience they just kind of categorized it as being the black experience and hence urban literature so do you think that it it, it marginalized authors who came after
1: you that's going to happen anyway you know mm-hmm. no matter what you call it if we just call it black lit, that's already marginalized because you're calling yeah. it black instead of just literature mm-hmm. you know if you call it love lit. It's already marginalized. Okay, it's a relationship work. And that's what they used to say about Terry McMillan's work. It's relationship work. So no matter what, when you put something in a category, it's going to marginalize it. And you're in Hollywood. They do yeah, that all, all the time. The time. Every yeah. single day they're going to marginalize something because they're trying to make it easier for people to understand what they're reading. And that's the same reason why I call mine urban, so you can understand what you're reading. So there's no way of getting around the marginalization of anything. You know, even with with female films, they call them, what, chick flicks? You know, Mm. chick lit or whatever. Right. You know, so they're going to marginalize everything. Whatever you do, they're going to marginalize it. You know, now they got, I just saw that, you know, of course, the Avengers movie last night. They call them uh, comic books. You know, you got some people that don't see them. Now, of course, they push those stronger than anything else. But everything has this little niche and this little genre, and there's nothing you can do about that, you know what Mm -hmm. I mean? Because you want people to understand what it is that they're reading, what it is that they're watching, what it is that they're listening to. But then it does have a tendency to uh, limit you when you have that tag on you. So, yeah, definitely people will call me an urban writer. But I've written love stories. I've written analytical stories. I've written autobiographies. I've written children's books. But, yeah, they call me Earth, so I'm like, okay, now I've got to swallow that because right. I started it. But I write everything, everything. And so now here I come into Hollywood, you're going to hear some Hollywood people say, oh, he's an urban writer. But I can write a love story, I can write a comedy, I can write an international story. I have written them, they're ready to go with screenplays, and I can't wait to jump into the Hollywood game. But, yeah, you're always going to have a marginalization because whenever you categorize something and people can put you in that category, it makes it easier for them to deal with who you are from their perspective, they don't want to be able to uh, change and, and add all this extra. It makes it too complicated for right, them. So right. it's just the human mind wants to simplify you, and that's how they do it.
0: So talking about the human mind and wanting to simplify people and and as you talk to Hollywood executives, let's transition into my favorite book, Fly Girl, which is now available as a screenplay for purchase on Amazon.com. Now, has it been greenlit to be turned into a feature film or are you still in the process and having those conversations?
1: Right. Well, you know, the Fly Girl thing has been in conversations for years as a film, but again you have to get involved in it and let them see how you can present it as a film. You know, it has two other books that are a sequel and trilogy, For the Love of Money and Boss Lady, right. and she grows up in those books. And so when we first were pitching it, of course, Hollywood doesn't want to count on any black young people. So if you mm-hmm. talking about a female fly girl in her teen years, they were skeptical about, okay, who are we going to anchor this to? Because, of course, we don't have any teen stars that we really look at in the acting game, right? And so immediately they looked at the older vehicles and said, well, we can do these older vehicles and utilize Sinai Latham.
2: Mm-hmm. And so
1: Sinai Latham was attached to the older vehicles. We never had a screenplay on the younger vehicle. At that time, I wasn't all jumping in about writing screenplays and whatnot. I was allowing Hollywood to do their thing. And I right. just told them, look, when you finish with the screenplay, let me read it to make sure it's on point with the language, the culture, everything else that I know from Philadelphia that I wrote.
2: Mm-hmm. so it's just not all
1: but I was willing to allow them to have that opportunity. We were there for five years and nothing happened. Wow. And every time I called up, it was like, oh, we're still working on it. We're not uh, happy what we have yet. We don't want to show you anything. And I'm calling up nice and, you know, mild-mannered and, you know, friendly and team-oriented. Hey, man, when you guys send us a screenplay, just send it over to me. I want to help you guys out in any way I can to make sure that this movie is the best we can make it. Right. And every time, it was, oh, we're not ready yet, Omar, we're, we're, we're you know, And so after a while, man, I said, you know what? They don't have a screenplay. And at this point, I need to go ahead and do my vision of how I look at the screenplay. Mm. And so I wrote it in December. It took me two weeks because I know the book. I know the content. I'm from Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. I'm from the 80s. All the characters of that book, I know. There's real people that are just like those characters. So I'm like, nobody's going to tell me how to write this screenplay. And so now it's just... The, the format of writing screenplays. And in October, I had some people that gave me, you know, some stronger lessons on the format and what Hollywood looked for. Mm-hmm. So by the time I wrote The Fly Girl, I was very sharp. Like, you like you just came out of the classroom right. and you sharp. And so that screenplay was off the hook. I'm talking about this. And I sent it to test readers, and they were like, yo, this thing is phenomenal. <laughs> and I already know that because I know how to tell a story. So I know when a story is snapping and popping and quickening. And so when that happened, now I'm sending out to my partners in Hollywood. They don't even have time to read it.
2: No. Oh, I didn't get
1: to it yet. I'm thinking, are you kidding me? Now I finally write a screenplay after five years of this thing sitting there. Now you don't have time to read it? And so at that point I said, you know what, I'm taking it right to the people. It's going to be the first screenplay that they read because it's excellent. And I want them to know my vision. If nothing happens with it, I want them to know my vision. And so that's how that happened. I put it out on Amazon. It has all five stars couple people gave me four stars. So I want to call them up like, yo, what's the Right, find out oh, why. About five stars? <laughs> and I know some of them, they're not going to like some of the changes that I made because, you know, when you're writing a movie, you don't have all the page count that you have in a book. Right. And you can't include everything. Mm-hmm. So it's a lot of stuff that I couldn't include and I had to create new stuff. But I can do that better than anyone else because I know the book, I know the characters, I know the city, I know the 80s. Right. And so whatever changes I made are going to be changes that would have fit those characters anyway. I just didn't have it in the book. But in the film, I wanted to make it more intense and more mature, okay, mm-hmm. because I didn't want some, some book that people are looking at as little teenage book. I said, no, i got to deal with her older teenage years from 15 to 17, and that's what I did. And so, yeah. Yeah, so for the people that gave me four stars instead of five, I already know without talking to them, they didn't want me to change anything from the book and I'm like, stop it. I cannot write a 400-page screenplay. That's not going to work. Right.
0: You well, know, you that, know, people sometimes, people sometimes just yeah. aren't used to change, but, you know, we have to be used to, to growth. But you, with, with the Hollywood just trying to create or write the screenplay for it to be turned into a film, now that you've done that yourself, do they no longer have the creative rights to continue writing the screenplays? So will you now do that on your own, uh, bring out the film?
1: Well, here's the irony of that, right? Let's say that the Hollywood people that I'm still involved with say, okay, Omar, we didn't ask you to write a screenplay. We don't want your screenplay. And I say, okay, well, let me see your screenplay. Uh-huh. And I'm going to wait and see. And I'm telling you right now, if everybody listening. They are not going to find anyone that can write a better screenplay than, you. than what's already there. Because right. They don't know that they will never know those characters like that. They will never know Philadelphia like I know. They will never know the '80s like. And so it's, it's, it's funny. I would laugh at them even trying. And I'm a writer. It's not like you know what I mean. If you're talking to like a musician or something or a non, I'm a writer. I know how to write. So right. it's like To outwrite my own story. It's laughable to me. The only thing that they could say is that he doesn't know how to write script. But like I told you, I went through a boot camp in October, and I'm not a, I am not—I was already writing screenplays. They just tightened it up.
2: Mm-hmm. And so when
1: I went through that boot camp, I came out like, yo, now I really get it. And that's what it is now. You got to be here. So mm-hmm. I'm a well-oiled machine, so my thing would be if you can present something better than what, but it's not going to happen. And here on the marketing side, watch how this works now. If you invite me in and say, we're going to use Omar's screenplay, Mm -hmm.
2: we're going to allow
1: Omar to consult, hell, we might even allow Omar to direct because he's talking about directing now. I become the Philadelphia hero. I become, and who's going to talk about the property better than I can? You know, now I can tour without the actors being there because now it's all attached to me. Right. It's like Tyler Perry's able to do his films where, if you think about it, nobody's bigger than Tyler in his films. Mm-hmm. Nobody. It's all about Tyler Perry, Tyler Perry. Tyler. And I'm not trying to be, you know, like the monster like that, but it makes it easier to market it now. It does. Because you can do all the work by yourself, right. you know what I mean, without anybody else. And that's not to say you don't want the actors, you know, helping you with the market. But I just look at it as a no-brainer situation to invite Omar Tyree all the way in on a property that he wrote, and he understands how to explain. Now, if I was some type of eccentric, you know, uh, uh, what they call him, introverted author who barely spoke or something, then I could see them backing away from me being involved. But like I just told you earlier, I've been a hustler. I've been a talker. I've been a street smart Philadelphia dude. So with that kind of dude, getting him on your side, he wrote the screenplay, you let him direct, you let him talk. And I'm going to market to the cows come home. Right. I already have a 25 cities tour set up, which includes 10 international cities and 15 national cities. Based on what I used to do with the book, That's what's But this up. same books now. This is film. Do yeah. well, you know how many more people are going to come out for my tours on a film tour yeah. versus a book tour? Yeah. And then people ask, well, why would you do that? Well, aren't they going to watch my movie in Chicago and Detroit and Texas? You know All these right. different places. And I show up and do media in the morning, media in the afternoon, radio, print, and television. And we do a and a at the theater and an after party. You mean to tell me that that won't get people excited? and That's going to sell more tickets to people that already saw the movie because yeah. now they want to ask me questions. And then people say, well, why would you do that? Because I'm that excited about the movie process and getting to the people who I never get a chance to see who read my book. Right. Now I can come out and talk to them as movie watchers. I can't wait. And then here's the other thing. I'm known in Canada. I'm known in the Caribbean. I'm known in the U.K. I'm known in Dubai. They'll read my books around the world. It was not like I'm some unknown screenplay writer. I right. already got popularity. So if you use my screenplay and now I'm pushing it, they already know who I am. It right. becomes easier for me to market in places that already know me. And we talk about film now. We're not talking about books. Now we talk about multiplying the crowd times a 100 because you know how people want to come out and see it versus reading it. Right. And so I can't wait, man. It's a no-brainer to get involved with me the same way you would get involved with Jordan Peele right now. He's a right. new... Black Darling of Hollywood, and we've been laughing at Black Holler for years. I always loved Black Holler, going all the way back to Blackula in the 1970s. Of course, I love Candyman. That's one of the classics. He wants to redo that one. You know, I also love Tales from the Hood, right. and Bones was a funny comedy with Snoop Dogg in it. You know, so I've watched all that stuff. Now, Jordan Peele was like the darling of Black Holler all of a sudden, and I love what he's doing it, but I'm like, dude, we've been at Black Holler, and yeah. we always laughed at it. But I had Black Blackheart with a movie called, or a film called Leslie, a book called Leslie that I wrote. This yes. Guy, now, but this is how excited I am to be involved. And when you ask that question, man, it's a no-brainer. The smartest thing for my partners to do is say, let's embrace Omar 100% because he's going to take us to the promised land like nobody else. He knows the material. He knows how to speak about it. He's handsome and casual with it. Put him out there. You know what I mean? So it's like you got to all win with me where now you don't have to anchor it to any star. You can anchor it to me and who's going to explain it better no star can explain that book better than I can right. like come on but so you know it is no-brainer. a no
0: brainer Omar and we yes. definitely know that if it was in theaters every seat would be filled to capacity but it brings okay. up the issue that you know people really don't want to call it for what it is and to me it's just blatant racism you know it's like you know right. Hollywood only lets in a certain number of blacks you know to right. tell the message for the black community oh we just let one in this year we got to wait another three years to let in another one and for me because the conversation for your book Fly Girl to be turned into a feature film has you know occurred for so long that's the only thing that I'm chalking it up to is you know just racism once again showing its ugly head up in Hollywood because this is a no brainer so are you going to now take it into your own hands and say okay I'm going to fund this myself and produce my own film I see actors doing this all the time i see musicians doing this all the time where they're funding their own projects will you do the same well uh,
1: uh, right i'm already doing that that's why i'm on the phone with you now when i did that screenplay and put it out i'm already doing it and i've been pushing if i can get a million inspired screenplay uh readers it's only ten dollars mm-hmm. a million that's ten million dollars amazon takes that got you. i have seven million dollars now to start that film and if you got seven million dollars you will get other investors that will put their money down
2: mm. and we'll get
1: this film done. You know, so that's where I went right to the people. I've already started it, but now you need media attention. So right. you need to have a million readers. You really need to have a lot of media attention. So I'm talking to as many people as I can talk to to get that word out there. But at the end of the day, you've got to put your money where your mouth is and you have to find the capital to shoot these films because Fly Girl is not some small independent film. I totally understand that. You know, to shoot the '80s like you really need to, you're going to need money for a lot of extras. Yeah. And so I already understand that you got to have the wardrobe together, the haircuts has to be together, and you have to make it feel like the '80s, which means you have to have the revenue to do that. Once yeah. you're finished, you have to have the revenue to promote it and market it, and you have to get it in the theaters, which means you're going to have to pay for those rentals. Yes. You know, so I understand the whole game of Hollywood. As I get more interested in it, I will learn more about it. I'm not an unintelligent guy. I can pick up information very very fastly or very quickly rather. And so I'm gonna pick up all that information and keep it rolling. But right now, yeah, you have to push your stuff forward and that's why I'm saying, you know, earlier that, you know, to anchor the thing on me because you can't count on other people. And so with Tyler Perry, whether you know, people like his style of film or not, I always admired the fact that he anchored everything on him and pushed it forward. And he was working on the next song before you saw it. Yeah. He working on two, three films a year. And yeah. so I, I admire the work ethic that he has. And I want to come in with that same work ethic because I have the content. You love Fly Girl. A lot of other people love Fly Girl. But I got 20 other books. And I got original ideas that I want to write a song that I've already created a film.
2: So I'm going to be writing
1: films for the rest of my life now. So this is not no one, one, one time deal. This is what I'm going to do now.
0: It better not be a one time deal. But for those who are tuning in, let's say we have some millennials sprinkled here and there who really don't know about Fly Girl. What is Fly Girl about? I know, but tell them.
1: Well, when I first put it out, I had a tagline, right? And I said, inside the big city, there's a mad obsession for gold, sex and money. Mm
2: -hmm. And
1: I was talking about the materialism that we went through in the 1980s. And so just to give a little side piece for the people that's listening right now, when I first was talking about, you know, producing a movie with the partners who are outside of me, they started talking about maybe we need to contemporize, you know what I mean? And I said, wait a minute now, the word fly is not even used anymore with these kids. Right. We were the fly generation black yes. America ever created <laughs> when you start talking about wearing jewelry mm-hmm. and designer clothes and designer sneakers, hip-hop, breakdancing dancing. Uh, street, all that kind of stuff, graffiti, the 80s started All people forgot, man, we had television shows just for Mm hip-hop, you know what I mean, like, the 80s started all of that, that's where the flyness came from, wanting to elevate and stand out, a fly in the buttermilk, it's a long, old term, and we just used the word fly by itself, we even had a song from this Brooklyn group called the Boogie Boys, called the Fly Girl. Fly, Mm -hmm. fly, fly fly And so that was a hot song in 1985. So I came up with this. We came up with everybody wanting to be fly, every person. Now, if you look at this new generation, they not fly, they not dressing up, they not fancy. The rap guys are fancy. But that's about it. Mm -hmm. Everybody else is normal. In the 80s, it wasn't no normal. We all were fly. We all were trying to be extra. Everybody walking down the street, and we were regular nobody. And at that time, we didn't have Instagram. And, and laptop computers and all that you wanted to show off of your peers that means you had to go outside you had to go to the party, you had to go to the rec center you had to go to the mall we were outside all the time and extroverted people mm-hmm. and so with me understanding that more than anyone I'm like dude you cannot take it away from the 80's that's where she came in that's right. why she was fly, she wanted to compete with everybody else and all the dudes that she wanted to date, they had to be fly than she was Right. And so right. I said, there's no way in the world you can update this. it how to be from the era in which it came from yeah the yeah. 1980s and, and so that you did so was well understanding the vision and then people said well how was the new generation going to relate to the 80s when you know they wasn't there and i said let me tell you something if they understand black girls like a black boy if they understand cool black inner city lingo if they understand looking cool and sounding cool and being black i said are you kidding me they're going to love this movie When I grew up in the 80s, we used to watch Cooley High, which is a 70s movie. We absolutely loved that movie. You know what I mean? We watched it all the time in Philadelphia. And so with the same thing going with The Fly Girl, I look at them watching it multiple times, just like they read the book multiple times. So it's going to be great to see the young people pick up the 80s and and love what we started, because all they are is an extension of what we started in the
2: 80s. So they
1: need to understand that history. And I can't wait to provide it for them. Me
0: either. Me either. But you mentioned, because um, I do have to um, wrap up this segment. You mentioned that um, Hollywood and even yourself were considering Sonia Lathan. I just have a few people that I just want to kind of throw out there. And you know, you kind of think about as you're thinking about who will play Tracy. I'm thinking about Kiki Palmer, Raven Simone, Kyla Pratt, Symphonique Miller, Angela Simmons, or Chloe and Haley Bailey. So, just a few, you know, actresses. I just kind of want to throw out basically mostly um, Kiki Palmer and Raven Simone. I think that they have that urban girl um, swag and, and lingo. And I think that you were, uh, you did something on social media with Yahara Shahidi. I don't, I think she's a beautiful girl, but I don't think that she can give us that swag that Tracy had in the book Fly Girls. So I just wanted to throw those names out there in the ring. But before we wrap right. this up, um, give, give us your social media so that people can continue to follow you before they purchase your screenplay, which is available right. on Amazon right now. What's your social media?
1: I'm at Omar Tyree everywhere. We tag our own names. We don't create something. You know, I've been pushing Omar Tyree for 20 something, almost 30 years now. Right. Oh, I'm still Omar Tyree on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram, on SoundCloud, on YouTube, All of it. I'm still Omar Tyree and I would like to say I like Yara Shahidi because she's young enough to play the role. I understand how young you have to be. And whenever I hear this talk about somebody not being urban enough, it's called acting. And I would sit down with Yara and explain to her how Philadelphians are. And she would get it because she's an actor. But she fits the role perfectly. And I would look for a young girls that fit the role perfectly because we're talking about 15 and 17. And I don't want it to look like you got some old person trying to play a young person. I'm not interested in that. I want to shoot it as organically and as natural as possible. So you're going to have to teach a young girl to have the look how to be a Philadelphian. And uh, guess what? I think I can do that.
0: Yeah, I know you can do that, but I just want that swag to be a little bit, you know, innate and, and authentic. You know, nothing against Yara. I think she's a beautiful girl, but I'm looking for that swag that you can have even when you're sleeping. Well, it's, it's
1: called acting. I can, and that's why when you do something like that, then you say, wow, I didn't believe she could do that. Well, make say, me a believer. Omar taught me how to do it. it and Did I get the credit? I love challenges like that. I love that. Yeah, make me a I believer. <laughs> She's but the oh oldest my. in her household, she got it in her, and she was the oldest on Black-ish.
0: Yeah, she got I know.
1: it in her. I know but they didn't ask her to do that because it was a different type of cast. Yeah, yeah, she yeah. Would probably love to play this role, so we'll see what happens.
0: We'll see what happens. Well, I'll definitely be uh, continuing to follow you on social media and encouraging Thanks. everyone that I know and tuning in to purchase the screenplay available now on Amazon. Omar, thank you so, so much for helping shape my latter 80s and and all throughout the 90s. You really just resonated the culture in such a way that I would love to see in this current space, in this digital space. Thank you so much and enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you. Bye-bye.